This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Shadows of the San Juans. And the author is William Breidinger. And William joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, William. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Now, this is a truth-based fiction. It's a Western. So give us some of the kind of an overview of the story, of the uh, plot, and then we'll go into details with the characters later. But just give us a general overview. Okay, Steve. The... uh the story of the book really centers around the life of uh, Alfred Packer, who's a real person in, in history, and uh, it covers the period from about 1860 through the turn of the century, and uh, covers a lot of the events of the of the Civil War and the West during that time. Um, it follows uh, the life of uh, Packer through the Civil War and the first and second westward migrations, I guess. And then, of course, the gold rush that was going on in in uh, Colorado, Utah, in the um, in the eighteen seventies and eighteen eighties. Why the fascination? Why did you write the book? Well, uh, part of the story has to do with uh, the survival of the fittest, essentially, uh, during the, the winters of eighteen seventy three and eighteen seventy four in the San Juan Wilderness, which is part of uh, western Colorado. And uh, I happened to live there for better part of a year, and that mountainous terrain is still wild today. And the, the people that were involved in the uh, in a trek across those mountains in January and February of 1874 were in some of the wildest country in the United States. And the, the fascination of, of, of trying to survive in that environment um, is really what, what piqued my interest. And then, of course, all of the subsequent things that happened thereafter. Um, that's essentially why I, I wrote it. How did you come across Bo Harkin? Bo Harkin is actually not a real character. He is a fictional character in the book, and uh, he complements uh, uh, the real characters in the book because someone like him had to be there at the time. Um, he's also named after the, the people that, that, of course, made the Hawken rifle, which is quite popular uh, in the mid-1800s out west. So, again, he's a fictional character, but he's someone that needed to be there, and certainly somebody like him must have been there. And why do you say that he must have been there? What what role did he play? Well, uh, in, in, a, in a part of the story, one of Alfred Packer's friends uh, uh, helped, him, uh, helped him out of legal difficulty, shall we say, and uh, uh, only, only a friend would have done that. And there, there, has to be, there had to be a continuity of friendship somewhere, um, in the story uh, with a person that you would know over a period of time. I mean, most of us have friends that we, you know, keep for a lifetime. And so I, I, did, I felt that it was necessary that, that the same existed there. So the main character is? Alfred Packer, yeah. Alfred. Yep. Tell us about Alfred and why he is the main character. Well, he's, he's, the, one that, uh, he's the one that survived the ordeal in 1873 and 74. 
and uh, his life is nothing but mysterious from the point forward to the point afterwards. Uh, there were there were several legal proceedings and uh, and all, and uh, it's just probably one of the most fascinating stories of the West for a variety of reasons because the the West was changing from a very wild period in, in our history to one of a modern civilization, and his story just kind of permeates through all of that. It's a and it's a fascinating story. So it's one that needed to be told from beginning to end and, and, and not as just a, a capsule of a, a period of time. So he starts out in the Civil War. Is that where we first meet him? Yeah, yeah, we first meet him in the in the Civil War. He's fighting for which side? Oh, he fought for the, he fought for the Union Army. Actually, he enlisted twice. Uh, also a little known fact, he was... Uh, Serving for the 16th uh, U.S. Regiment uh, stationed at Fort Ontario in uh, Oswego, New York. And then he later on, uh, in the latter part of the war, in the, the campaigns of 1864 around Chickamauga, Chattanooga, he was uh, with a cavalry unit out of Iowa. I think it was the 6th Iowa Cavalry, as I recall. And so is this where General Adams, how he gets to meet General Adams, who plays an important part in the book? Um, no, actually, General Adams was uh, comes later on in the book in the 1870s. He was a, a territorial uh, army supervisor um, for the Western Territory of Colorado, uh, where he operated an Indian agency. Uh, it was customary during those times when there were treaties with the Indians that there were certain allotments that each tribe got, and, uh, and cattle and monies and stuff like that. And General Adams was in charge of that that whole area that, that worked with the Indian nation. So after the Civil War, there was all this interest and, I guess, this fascination and also the uh, chance that you could get rich if you went west, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there were, there were gold strikes all over, uh, all over Colorado. I think the most famous one was in Breckenridge. And, uh, and, and folks just, you know, after California, of course, in '49. You know, another gold strike would bring a whole bunch of other uh, prospectors and uh, settlers into an area, and the same thing was happening in Colorado. Um, you know, one of the stories about Silverton, Colorado, which is the southwest, which is where I live, uh, was that everybody came uh, there looking for gold, and they couldn't find any, and they'd say, well, we didn't find any gold, but we found silver by the ton, and that's how the village got its name. And this whole... Uh rush for gold and discovery of silver and all kinds of other precious metals was part of the settling of the West. Absolutely. I mean, no, probably the people wouldn't have gone because <laughs> it was, it was, uh, it was like you say, it was survival of the fittest kind of lifestyle. Absolutely. Um, and, and the worst conditions ever, as I, as I say, the San Juan wilderness today, that area of 100, 200 square miles of, of, of mountainous terrain is, 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 is virtually the same as it was 130 years ago. And uh, difficult country for e even the most experienced mountaineers today to live in uh, during harsh weather. Now, who is Polly Pry? Polly Pry was a socialite um, in the city of Denver at the turn of the century. That She was a socialite and, a, a, and apparently a socialist uh, during, the, during the turn of the century in, uh, in Denver. She was involved in, in trying to obtain a pardon for our, our main character. And, and that was an extremely interesting set of events that occurred there. Um, so it's, um, 
again, you know, if you're looking at the 50-year period, you're looking at a, a, a settling of the West, a territory uh, that's, that stays a territory for some time. Uh, Colorado became a state in 1876, and then, you know, uh, Denver was nothing but a cow town in the 1850s, and by the 1900s it was a... Uh, a burgeoning city with uh, uh, all kinds of major institutions, uh, the wealth of the gold and silver fields that flowed there, and uh, and you have a, a regular social network and uh, and with socialites nonetheless. So Polly was a, a writer for a local paper and uh, again a socialite and uh, a champion of causes. And so she's she's very instrumental in this in this story. What happens to Alfred that he needs to have a pardon? Well, that's, that's, that's really the gist of the story. He's, again, as I said in the beginning, he was the only survivor um, and the, uh, of, the, of a trek in 1874. And his companions didn't make it. Now, and Alfred was charged with murder. And he, you know, to his death, um, always proclaimed that he had never, uh, never done that. And so the, the, you know, the legal proceedings actually take place over a course of about 20 years. And, and so, and so you, give us a, you give us a, a real inside view at all those legal proceedings against him. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a, it's, yes, I do. As a matter of fact, you get, you, you get to follow this trail uh, through, through all its permutations right up to the end. It's very difficult, as you have mentioned, for really to understand this time and the all the odds that are against everyone because of it's such a, a rough lifestyle. Uh, what what are you trying to tell us with the book? What what's, what are you trying to help us understand? Well, I've given that a lot of thought over the years because I really finished the book about thirteen years ago. Um, I think the I think one of the things I was really searching for um, is to try and convey uh, what it would be like for anyone to be in that situation, and I make that and I make that assumption that that anyone would do almost anything to survive, and yet they still have to deal with the reality of what's been done or what they have done, um, and then to have face have to face the consequences later in a world that probably doesn't make any sense, given the one you just came out of. I think that's the hardest thing to try to convey, but that's what I was trying to do with the book. And secondarily, uh, I really wanted to paint a different kind of picture of the West, of, of, of a place that was growing and changing uh, continuously. I guess we all have our certain uh, view of the West, especially because of movies and TV, so... You're trying to give us a, a very realistic picture and not Hollywood's view. Yes, absolutely. That's that's exactly what I was trying to do. How well do you think you did? Well, uh, <laughs> that's not for me to say. I guess that's for the for the readers <laughs> to find out. But people that have read the have read the book uh, have said that they they thought it was quite good. So I'm sure that the the reader will enjoy the story. It's a good story, and I believe that uh, they'll get a lot out of it. Now, is this the beginning of uh, sequels? Uh, I would say probably not. You could sequel this, but uh, I am going to start another book this winter, and uh, we'll, and that'll be completely different. William, how do we get your book? Well, uh, my understanding is that we uh, can order it through iUniverse.
it's available there and uh, can be purchased online, and and uh, folks should uh, uh, to look to doing that there. And, of course, they can get it at all other online bookstores as well. They can order it if the bookstore doesn't have it. Absolutely, and I, and I certainly encourage people to go out and get it. It's a great story, and I know they'll like it. William, thanks for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate the opportunity. That was William Breidinger. He is the author of his book, Shadows of the San Juans. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Dragon's Treasure, A Dreamer's Guide to Inner Discovery Through Dream Interpretation. And the author is R.J. Cole, and R.J. joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, R.J. Well, hey, Steve. Well, good to have you with us. We're going to take a journey into our dreams and, and the significance of them and also how we can use them. But I want to read... The introduction, uh, how you would introduce your book to a friend, sure. and just a you know just a, a short overview. I'm just going to read what you wrote. Okay. The dragon's treasure is designed to aid in the learning about oneself through the thoughtful analysis of dreams. I look at symbolic meaning of dreams within the context of everyday life and suggest that life itself can be looked as though it were a dream, the waking dream, that can be analyzed much as the sleeping dream for clues to personal behavior, problem-solving, and self-development. 
Well, that is a obviously a mouthful. Yeah. And uh, a lot to talk about. But let's first of all, before we get into talking about this waking dream and how to analyze it. Okay. Why did you write the book? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, Steve, the original, you know, idea was to see whether or not I could actually write a book. Um, but, you know, as I said earlier, uh, I, uh, once I'd had that revelation, then it was, well, what do I write about? And I realized, you know, I've had over 30 years experience of uh, journalizing my own dreams. I uh, probably have about 3,000 of them that I've written down over the last uh, 25 years or so. And I also worked with uh, children in um, residential and daycare uh, treatment facilities, kids who had emotional disturbances and uh, found uh, the use of dreams and how kids, you know, project their emotions and, the, you know, their patterns of behavior onto a dream, you know, were quite effective. So, um, so I said, well, let's take a look at that uh, and, uh, and see what... Uh, you know, see what I've learned in that particular area. The other thing is, is the society we live in today is, um, in a lot of ways, is, is pretty much ruled by fear. Uh, and when I speak about society, I, I, I mean us, you know, the society I live in, uh, the American society. And, um, and it's this fear which is sort of an obstacle or has become an obstacle to both political and social understanding. And one of the things that one can do to get a hold of that fear and to begin to see how one is, is acting out, uh, you know, their fears, is through dreams, is through dream analysis, through uh, accessing, you know, some of your unconscious behavior patterns um, that show up in the dreams. So, you know, those were the reasons that, uh, you know, I, I thought that I had something to contribute in that area. Well, you have a section that says 18 steps for becoming a wizard in your universe. Right. And one of the steps, one of these important steps is journal your dreams. Now, so what are you saying to me and to all of us that it's very important to write down what you dream as, soon, as quickly as you can? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if, if, at first it's kind of difficult to do that because none of us are have been reinforced to remember our dreams. Um but there are some, you know, fairly simple techniques for doing that. You know, keep a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil by your bed. Um, you know, be conscious before you fall asleep that, you know, you want to try to remember your dream. Um, you know, if you wake up and you remember only a fragment of the dream, that's fine. Get the fragment down. You know, frequently fragments can have, you know, uh, uh, significant meaning too. Um, but you do it over and over and over again until you build up a behavior pattern of, uh, of journalizing. And um, it's eventually it gets to the point where you have more dreams than you're willing to write down. <laughs> and then you've got to sort of triage a little bit. Um, and, uh, and the book goes into that. It goes into the, the techniques and, and uh, you know, what has worked and not worked for me, uh, that sort of thing. We've all had experiences with dreams that can be so bizarre. Oh, yeah. You know, and you you wake up and you go, what did I just think about? What was I dreaming about? That was the strangest thing. Sometimes you can remember them very clearly, and other times there's just a kind of a faint something that happened, and then you and you knew it was. You maybe can see one picture. Yeah. So how do you take that 
and and help you, like you say, uh, to help you understand what's going on in your real life? Well, you know, a, a, a fragment, let's say, like you suggested, a you know, a single picture, uh, maybe with an emotion attached to it. Right, especially uh, emotion, right? Yeah, especially the emotion. Again, just write it down. Um, that in and of itself may not be of much value, but put it together with several nights worth of those, and uh, you might begin to see a pattern. Um, so th- that's what I do is, is I just, whatever comes up, I put down. Um, if there's enough to work with, I work with it. Uh, if there isn't, I just wait until I've got enough to work with. Um, mine are usually at this stage of the game, after 25, 30 years of this, um, are usually pretty clear and pretty detailed and have a beginning, middle, and an end. It's almost like a book, you know, that shows up in the dream. But, um, even fragments, even one word or one picture fragment, attached to a feeling can be useful. Um, you can take the feeling, you can take the fragment, you can, you know, see what that symbolizes, um, what, the, what, the, what the picture symbolizes. Um, and, uh, and then take a look at it, okay, is there some place in your life that uh, you're feeling what you're feeling in the dream or that you, you know, you have a vision somewhere in your life that you you know, the dream is, is, is pointing to. It's basically all a dream is going to do is just point at something. Um, and, yeah, uh, without going into a whole lot of detail, that's basic. In this list of 18 steps for becoming a wizard in your universe, another one says, let go of your expectations and your need to be right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the need to be right is a killer. Um, <clears throat> I mean, and we all have it. I mean, we're right-making. Um, uh, as I say in the book, and I've said often to you know some of the students I've worked with, is that that's what we are as right-making machines. I mean, we're even we're, we're even right about saying we're wrong, you know, about something. Uh, we're never wrong in our own universe. And sometimes what that can do is that can be a real obstacle to getting what's really going on, um, or fully understanding the other person if you're in communication with them or, you know, to get some sense of what's going on around you, you know, the problems that you have. It's a huge obstacle. Um, The expectations is another part of that. Um, You could even say judgments. Um, you, You have an expectation about an event or you have an expectation about a person and that event and person doesn't meet your expectations and that affects um, that affects what you get out of the event, usually negatively, uh, or get out of the relationship with the person, usually negatively, um, or, or at least it limits what you get. And what I'm suggesting is, is that if you really want to produce magic in your life, uh, let go of those expectations. Um, let go of those judgments. Uh, and you'll be surprised when you're just able to be with the person as they are uh, without your expectations, because they are just yours. Uh, it, it's surprising what you can get out of the relationship and what you can get out of the event. What do you mean by believing in magic? That's one of the 18 steps, and you just mentioned it. Yeah, I um, in the book I point out what I consider to be magic. Um, and I'm not talking about 
sleight of hand tricks. I'm not talking about Harry Potter type magic. Um, what I'm talking about is the the magic. Well, if you can visualize, you know these huge metal objects that go flying down a runway and then take off and literally leap into the air. I mean, these things weigh thousands of tons, and yet they're able to defy gravity and fly through the air. I mean, it's that sense of awe, that sense of magic when you really get to it. Um, it's, an, it's the kind of thing where you develop a, an intention that something is going to happen, and you... Out of that intention, you do a variety of things that are aligned with the intention or with your desire, and they happen. Um, it, it's um, that kind of magic. It's kind of magic when you are with somebody that you're very close to, and you both seem to be able to finish each other's sentences. You both seem to have a, uh, a, a similar thoughts, you know, at the same time. So. I'm proposing that, you know, magic is with us all the time. Uh, it's just that we don't label it magic. Uh, that sort of thing. I, I'm also thinking of, I think it's magic when you've got this little, you know, key fob and you, you're able to open your car door, you know, from 20 feet away. Um, I mean, that, that to me is magic. So it's, it's sort of restructuring your, the way you visualize the world to something less mundane and more magical. Help us understand this concept that you call the waking dream. Ah, yes. Um, The waking dream is a concept that's been around a long time, Um, and I cite a number of authors who have looked into it at much greater depth than I did. Um, But it's, there's a Edgar Allan Poe poem that, where he asks, uh, called a dream within a dream, where he asks the question twice, is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream? And what I'm proposing is that when the dreamer wakes up, you know, from his sleep, the dreaming doesn't stop, that um, it goes into what I call the waking dream. So it's sort of the, the logical application of what, you know, Poe was talking about. Um, the, as I said earlier, the patterns that we see in dreams, because dreams do, over time, show patterns of behavior, your behavior. Um, and those patterns show up in your waking life as well. And you can interpret the patterns in your waking life much as you can the patterns in you know, your sleeping dream. And you can access the meaning uh, in your waking dream which is just a way of holding that, uh, from, um, you know, being able to access the unconscious uh, you or the subconscious you in the sleeping dream. Does that make sense? It does. So, um, you know, after a while, and in the book, I also, I write down what my waking dream was. In other words, uh, up to a certain point in my life, the the point being to to get some sense of you know what I what patterns am I creating in my life based upon what I did uh, you know throughout my life. Um, it's so that I can take a look at vivid life experiences you know and find 
meaning within, within them. I mean, we all have vivid life experiences. We all have events that happen to us, relationships that aren't quite working or don't work at all uh, and break up. And it's uh, what, what meaning is in those other than just the meaning, you know, of the breakup itself or, or the, the unworkability of whatever the relationship is? Well, there's a way of looking at that through the waking dream, through the, you know, the symbolic meanings of the waking dream, similar, if not, you know, the same as the sleeping dream. So it's another, it's another way to look at your life in, in a, you know, through a different uh, set of glasses. Through a different window, a different yeah. paradigm. Yeah, a different paradigm. You, we have enough time, I think, to cover uh, one more subject here. One of the titles of your chapters, one says, The Role of Religion. So talk about that with us. In several sections, I'm pointing out the various things in, um, in our lives. We, we, don't, we don't live our lives... Um, truly separated from everything that's going around us. Uh, the society within which we live, you know, determines a lot about how we see things. Um, it's the, the old idea that uh, it's not seeing, is believing, but, you know, what you believe is what you see. And what I contend is, is that, you know, religion, and when I'm talking about religion, I'm talking about it as a whole, as an institution, not individual churches, because I've had experience with individual churches that do some amazing transformational things for, for folks. Um, but as a whole, it can be a, uh, an obstacle to you viewing reality as it is. Because if you try to view reality through your belief, um, you can't. All you get is the belief and the colorations that that belief, you know, puts into it. I suggest that there is, a, you know, reality beyond just our belief. And so really with religion, in that section, I'm taking a look at what in religion or, or, and or belief in a religion can serve as obstacles to you um, seeing reality beyond, you know, what, how you're seeing it now. Um, so it, it's literally the transformational process. The, the process of transforming your experience of reality can't happen until you're willing and able to move outside your beliefs. Um, so basically that's what that chapter is about. RJ, tell us how to get your book. Well, um, one of the things you can do, I've got a website, and I'll give you that right now, and that's www.thedreamingwizard, all small caps, .com. And you can order it directly from there. There's also a bit of a summary and a, <coughs> a bit of a recap of kind of things that we've been talking about today in there, too. And, of course, you can get it through iUniverse. You can get it through iUniverse. Uh, you can get it uh, also through Amazon.com and uh, also um, Barnes & Noble, as far as I know, uh, at, at this particular time. Um, I'd prefer you go through iUniverse.com, but, you know, <laughs> I'm prejudiced. RJ, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Ah, I appreciate it, Steve. It's been a good, uh, it's been a good interview. That was RJ Cole. 
He is the author of his book, The Dragon's Treasure, A Dreamer's Guide to Inner Discovery Through Dream Interpretation. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Pink Slips and Parting Gifts, and the author is Deb Hosey White, and Deb joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Deb. Hi, how are you today? Good to have you on the show now. Pink Slips and Parting Gifts This is what you wrote about it, a short overview. You said mergers and acquisitions have a real human impact. Pink Slips and Parting Gifts is a business novel that takes place at the beginning of the 21st century. It is set inside a Fortune 500 corporation that has been auctioned and sold to a competing company. This is a work of fiction that reflects the economic times of a nation. Then you go on to say one in five corporate employees can testify to the real impact of mergers and acquisitions. Mergers are messy business and they change the lives of everyday people. Everyday people, however, don't headline the merger and acquisition news. So this is real focused, I guess, on the emotional roller coaster that often can accompany these kinds of events, right? That's correct. What happens to the people who aren't making the news that are involved in a merger, but are certainly uh, are affected by it uh, in their everyday lives. So why did you write the book? And first, before you go into that, tell us a little bit about your background. I think it w- that would be interesting to our listeners. Well, I have more than 30 years in human resources and in uh, business management consulting and also in coaching. And so I've had an opportunity over my career to... I experienced the business world from a lot of different perspectives through witnessing uh, many, many stories and events in my career. It's just such wonderful, interesting stories that 
I felt like I wanted to share those. So we look at different scenarios, different events, or is it more of a, of a novel about uh, main characters and the corporate world? It is a novel about the corporate world, but there are over 75 characters in the book that we follow. Uh, some of them make an appearance for less than a page. Some are in the, there at the beginning, some are there still at the end. Uh, it's all in the process of still telling the story about the event and then meeting this, many of the people that are affected by this event, the merger of two large corporations. Now, right at the start of the book, you mentioned about the impact of the game of Monopoly on the corporate world. Give us your view of that. Well, it's a, a thought that crossed my mind as I was starting to write this story. And I was thinking about, you know, what is it that motivates a CEO to decide to sell a corporation that's been around for a long time, that might be a household name, that's doing well, that employs lots of thousands of people. What is it? What's that magic moment that, that comes along that makes a CEO say, I think it's time to sell the company? And in thinking about that, it struck me that there is this monopoly mentality that we have in the United States, maybe in the world, that uh, we as children play this game, and then interestingly enough, we have a lot of people in the business world who've grown up and are playing it as adults. Now we're going to look at the Easton Company, correct? That's correct, and this is a fictitious company. It's a developer, it is a Fortune 500 company in the U.S., and it is merging, actually being acquired by one of its competitors, Pratt Miles. And across the street, there's also a social place that plays a big part in the people's lives who work at Easton's? That's correct. And that's where some of my favorite scenes in the book take place. Uh, on this very last day that the Easton Company exists before it disappears from the big board on Wall Street and is acquired by its competitor. And those scenes that are my favorites really revolve around the party that's going on at the bar across the street from Easton's corporate headquarters. Very last day that the company exists, uh, it's a Friday, rainy Friday afternoon. This, the deal is finally sealed. The company is sold. And we have uh, Easton company employees who migrate across the street to the aptly named Darwin's Bar for a final Easton Company blowout. Readers follow several characters in and out of Darwin's during this 10-hour party that's going on. And first we meet Rob and Cindy, who are a married couple. They're both employed as accountants for Easton. And on this last day, when the sale closes, Cindy gets her pink slip, she gets emotional, and then she gets drunk. And her after-hours final visit to the empty Easton headquarters building is both touching and amusing as she recalls some very important events in her life that take place there. Later in the evening, a group of employees exiting Darwin's watches in disbelief as the Easton Company's sign is ripped from the ground by a crane and dropped as though it's just scrap metal into a dump truck. 
just hours after the deal was finalized. And at closing time at Darwin's, we go back inside and meet the anonymously generous individual who's arranged to pick up the $2,300 bar tab for this last great Easton Company bash. And then finally, on this day, we follow another group of employees leaving the bar as they head for a small ceremony that is really of their own making at the grave site of Ed Easton, who is the Easton Company's much-admired late founder. Those are scenes that I really love, and I love the characters that, that uh, populate those scenes. When you describe your book, you ask the question, uh, what's your book about? And you say it's a business workplace novel about the merger of two corporations. And then a answer to that statement sounds awful boring to me. <laughs> Give us some insights on how this is much more than just the mechanics and the history of two companies merging. You're really talking about what's happening to people. That's correct. This is definitely a peek behind the curtain, uh, not the stuff that you're reading about on the business page of the New York Times. And so when I, when I jokingly s- said uh, in, in that description of sounds pretty boring, you know, when you say to somebody, it's, my book is a work of business workplace fiction, it may not so- sound terribly entertaining, however... I have to tell you, I've been told that Pink Slips and Parting Gifts has inspired some readers to drop the book laughing and others to throw the book across the room in anger while shouting some choice words. So, obviously the story has inspired uh, a lot of questions and strong responses from readers. And and in all honesty, I'm very grateful for that. Uh, We really are looking at characters who are unique but then that's what life is made up of, very unique people who are reacting to learning that their careers, their jobs, their years of dedication to a particular company uh, are about to go away. And I find that uh, something very interesting to talk about and explore in the book. And uh, in a lot of ways, it's, it's poignant and at the same time can be very entertaining. I guess it's something for everyone to think about because given the economic times we're in, may help us to work through that day when we get the pink slip. Well, I'd hope so. But I also would say I'd hope that uh, uh, not only am I finding readers who are uh, identifying with the employees who uh, are not the decision makers in these mergers, But in some cases that I'm finding readers who are at the top of the food chain, if you will, in these corporations and who maybe will think a little bit more about effects of the decision of merger on their employee populations. Not that it would change the decision to merge, but the the decisions about packages and benefits and uh, notification, all those things, that all of this, there, there are good and bad ways to handle uh, these human resources issues that come about, and we could do a better job. We certainly spend most of our lives working 
for one company. Of course, that doesn't happen as much as it used to, but we certainly spend so much time and we get emotionally tied to what we do. So it is a major disruption. It can be. It definitely can be. And, you know, we, we really, interestingly enough, you know, we spend so much of our lives in the workplace as Americans, and yet there is not a lot of workplace fiction out there. There certainly is some, uh, you know, a decade ago we saw novels with Silicon Valley and dot-com settings, and there's always been plenty of government intrigue fiction set in federal offices in and around the nation's capital. And there's other exceptions like Arthur Haley's hotel and airport novels that some uh, listeners may remember. Uh, more recently, Weisberger's The Devil Wears Prada. Uh, but I think that it is unique to have a book that is really set in the workplace and about what's really going on with the people who populate uh, this corporation during uh, a merger in progress. Your book must be very unique. I can't imagine many books written from this point of view. So I've been told. Um, I've had a couple of people who have been very surprised that someone who spent a career in human resources would be interested in uh, writing a book. And my response is, uh, gosh, you know, sometimes we have some of the best stories uh, over a career in human resources. And certainly that's also a motivation to uh, indulge in creative writing uh, is the opportunity to, to share some of these, these stories that are sometimes uh, just stranger than fiction and, and too good to be true. Very few books would have a title about Tales of the Sofa. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have to tell you, uh, as the book has now been in the marketplace for a bit, it, Tales of the Sofa is uh, a favorite part uh, of the book for all kinds of readers, and uh, it's it's certainly uh, unique. We uh, we follow a sofa that starts out as a gift from the the founder of the Easton Company uh, to the new CEO. Uh, we follow that post merger uh, as it's discovered in the empty executive suite of the former Easton Company headquarters, and it travels from place to place throughout the building. Uh, the sofa has its own story to tell, I think, uh, about each of its temporary caretakers as it relocates from the CEO's office to human resources to a couple of guys in the IT group and then the maintenance staff break room. And then finally, it lands on the loading dock behind the building adopted by uh, a man named Don, don't call me Miami Vice Johnson, who is a local homeless man. So yes, and I, I, I've gotten emails from readers who've asked me if the sofa is a metaphor for the post-merger dismantling of, of the Easton Company in the story, and I've replied that if the reader says it's a metaphor, well, then it's a metaphor. But in reality, sometimes... A sofa's just a sofa. It must have been very challenging weaving these 75 characters throughout this story. Were, were other great challenges? I think uh, the most challenging part of writing the book was 
developing the format for telling the stories I wanted to tell. Pink Slips and Parting Gifts does unfold through a series of vignettes, and the reader moves around the plot and becomes a spectator of the action from many different viewpoints. And that being said, uh, assuring that the reader could follow the storyline uh, effectively was a challenge, and it required quite a lot of editorial skill. Deb, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available from iUniverse, and also online. Uh, it's available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Well, we appreciate you sharing your story with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Deb Hosey-White. She is the author of her book, Pink Slips and Parting Gifts. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.